Welcome to the 73rd episode of Coronavirus the Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Kaur, host of the Popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO at Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. His book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, continues to receive industry-wide praise. All profits will be donated to Doctors Without Borders. Information on a range of medical topics can be found on his website, robertperlmd.com. A year ago or so, we expanded the content of coronavirus, the truth to include a broader healthcare interest than just a problematic and perplexing virus. Listeners have enjoyed that half of the show as much as the information we provide about COVID-19 itself. And since it is likely that COVID-19 will increasingly share the stage with other healthcare developments, we're going to rename the show Medicine the Truth, but continue to include it as part of our weekly Fixing Healthcare series. Robbie, even with the new name, let's begin today with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life, and then go on to discuss a broad range of medical topics. What happened and what does it mean? Jeremy, I'm amused every time I see media headlines or hear pundits talking about the new variants as something surprising. We're now in our fifth series of Greek and English letters, and nothing about the progression has been unexpected or unpredictable. It would be as though there were shock over the fact that the sun came up this morning. I particularly laugh when policy experts warn that the newest variant is more transmissible than the last one. That's 100% predictable. That's simply how viruses behave. The more transmissible variant always wins out. Similarly, the fact that the new variants have a higher rate of breakthrough infections after vaccination or infection is similarly guaranteed. We're watching when it comes to viruses, the exact same phenomenon of survival of the fittest that we see in animal and human evolution. The only difference is that it requires hundreds of thousands of years for people to evolve and viruses can do it in a matter of months. The reason is the frequency of replication. It takes people nine months to have a single offspring, while viruses can produce tens of thousands of offspring in a matter of days. And in general, viral mutants aren't going to be more lethal than their predecessors, since that wouldn't be evolutionarily advantageous. But being able to bypass immunity, whether that immunity came from vaccination or prior infection, that would be. And that's been the story of the pandemic for the past three years. And it's true relative to the newest variant that's called XBB.1.5. Combining the higher transmissibility of XBB.1.5 and its ability to overcome immunity, along with the December holidays and the cold weathers that's driving people indoors, we're seeing what we know is inevitable. Again, this is the rise in the number of infections this time of year. But because immunity is so much higher in the population overall, due to both vaccination and prior illness, what we're seeing is far fewer deaths per day than a year or even two years ago. The higher number of cases has increased daily deaths compared to last fall, 
But the risks of needing hospitalization and dying on a per-infected person basis, that's much less. And translating those numbers, total cases have soared, but deaths are only around 500 per day rather than the 400 they were several months ago. It's a smaller increase on a comparative basis. It's still tragic, but it's nowhere near what would have happened with this variant in the first year of the pandemic. In other COVID news, Moderna announced that it's planning to price its COVID-19 vaccine between $110 and $130 per dose. And that's similar to what Pfizer had said in October it was considering. The current price per dose with the federal government, it's only $26, a fifth as much. The company is projecting vaccine sales will drop in 2023 from 18.4 billion in 2022 to 5 billion in 2023. This high vaccine cost will make vaccination for people without health insurance challenging, and it's likely to diminish people's willingness to be boosted. Finally, as we discussed in the last episode, China has undone its zero COVID tolerance policy with all the consequences that we've predicted in that show. Cases are massive in number. Deaths are reported in 60,000 over the first six weeks, but more likely the actual number is in the hundreds of thousands as hospitals are being overrun and huge numbers of patients are dying undiagnosed at home. As a result, the U.S., like many other nations, now requires COVID-19 testing for anyone coming here from China. And on many flights, what we're seeing is that as many as half the travelers have tested positive. China is a great example of the transmissibility of the current virus strains. After approximately two months of eliminating mandatory social distancing, it's estimated that 80% of the population, this massive population, 80% has been infected. And that means that going forward, we're likely to see a drop in the daily mortality since most people will now have some immunity at least to fight the virus, both those who were vaccinated and those who were not. And finally, with the Lunar New Year holiday having just happened and travel celebrations being near universal in China, most people who hadn't been previously infected will become so this month. Can you expand more on this new variant? Sure, Jeremy. The XXB.1.5 variant has become the dominant strain in much of the US. And as we said, that's because it's more transmissible. But it's a little bit different than we might otherwise predict. It's not that this virus is specifically or particularly effective at escaping antibodies. It's that it's much better at binding to the cells in our respiratory tract and being able to replicate. As such, people have a higher chance of contracting COVID if someone around them is infected. But when they become ill, they aren't more likely to become sicker, to need hospitalization, or die. And despite this higher transmissibility, since immunity in the population is greater than in the past, the total number of cases appears to be significantly lower than the peak of a year ago. Now, this is nature's battle playing out in our bodies. Higher transmissibility favors the virus. Greater immunity favors people. And once listeners understand that, they can make total sense of the numbers that they read and hear. Everything about this virus continues to be logical and totally predictable. Putting these pieces together for listeners who want to know what they should do 
given the current threats, as we've said on this show many times, one size doesn't fit all. Anyone in higher risk due to age, chronic illness, or immunocompressed status should wear a mask, get boosted, and minimize indoor situations where there are crowds of people. Healthy younger individuals, they can decide based upon their own risk tolerance. Totally eliminate social distancing, and many will become infected, similar to other winter colds. But if they're vaccinated and boosted, they're unlikely to get very sick. Take precautions, and the likelihood of becoming ill will be higher, whether you're looking at COVID, the flu, RSV, or a variety of other viruses. For those individuals in the high-risk group, their biology requires them to be cautious. But for those in the low-risk group, their actions need to be driven by their personal psychology, their risk tolerance, and lifestyle preferences. Relative to vaccination, this new variant seems to be susceptible to the immunity produced by the recently used bivalent vaccines, and that is good for at least three months after boosting. Going forward, the FDA is considering recommending an annual COVID booster with the mRNA in the booster being made up of subtypes chosen in June, most likely to match the expected circulating strains in the fall. This would make our COVID vaccination approach similar to what our country does for the flu each year. Last week, the FDA asked its expert panel to endorse this approach with a single annual dose for individuals at low risk and two boosters a year for those at high risk. However, the FDA's expert panel felt it needed additional data on the different populations to determine who would need one booster shot each year and who would require two. It is likely that they will concur with the plan in the near future. Jeremy, let me ask you whether you think people after three years now understand how this virus behaves and the risk they face, whether it is high or low, whether you think most people just have put COVID out of their mind and they're not thinking at all about this coronavirus. Robbie, I think at this point, people understand how viruses work and have made their own personal decisions on how much risk they are comfortable with for themselves and their family. Uh, people have come to terms with the fact that COVID-19 is here to stay, and those who are still more risk averse can still be seen out and about wearing masks or social distancing. But I feel like the vast majority of people have gone back to living their daily lives like they did before the pandemic in terms of working in office, going to sporting events and concerts, eating in restaurants, etc., I think the vast majority of people have put COVID-19 in the rearview mirror. They're not ignorant to the fact that it's out there and that they could contract it, but they know that it's here to stay and they still need to live their lives. Robbie, a listener said she was fully vaccinated and boosted and wondered if she should take antiviral pills should she become infected. Jeremy, the data on antivirals for people who are boosted and vaccinated isn't clear. However, a recent study shows that the pills may be less important and less helpful than previously thought. The drug manufactured by Merck was found to speed up recovery somewhat, but it didn't reduce the hospitalization or the mortality rate. In a large study of people who had been vaccinated and boosted, who were sick for, five, for fewer than five days when they started taking the pills, which is the recommended time frame, and they were either over the age of 50 or over 18 with one underlying medical condition, University of Oxford researchers found 
no impact on the likelihood of their developing severe illness. And this outcome contrasts with prior research by the manufacturer. It demonstrated a 30% reduction in the need for hospitalization in the unvaccinated. The explanation for the difference in the studies is that someone who's fully vaccinated and boosted is already well protected. And the potential benefit from adding an antiviral becomes minimal when it comes to hospitalization and death. The medication in the vaccinated and boosted did, however, reduce the amount of virus in the nasopharynx, the so-called viral load, which could impact the likelihood that the people will transmit it to others. And the pills also help them recover approximately four days sooner. Now, whether this justifies taking the drug given its cost and the other risks is debatable amongst policy experts in Britain, where this study was done, this antiviral medication is no longer being recommended for individuals who are already vaccinated and boosted. Robbie, as usual, what's this episode's newest piece of information about COVID relative to kids? One major issue for kids is the impact the triple-demic is having, a topic we discussed in prior episodes. Many kids are having one respiratory infection after another. And recently, the CDC warned that co-infection with COVID and influenza can potentially cause more severe illness in children and either alone. More specifically, data from the 2021-2022 influenza season revealed that 6% of flu-related hospitalizations and 16% of flu-related deaths involved children who were co-infected with COVID-19 and influenza. Of the seven co-infected children who died last year, none had received the flu shot, although six were eligible, according to the CDC guidelines. Moreover, kids hospitalized with both infections had a 10% higher chance of needing to be intubated and requiring mechanical ventilation. In the 2021-2022 influenza season, there were 44 pediatric deaths attributed to influenza. In the current season, already there are 21 children who have died from influenza. And when it comes to children and adolescents dying, viral infections aren't the only cause that's in the news. A recent study reported that there were 38,362 homicide victims age 0 to 17 in the years 2003 to 2019, with the number of deaths rising on average by 4.3% a year and the rate soaring by 27.7% in the first year of the pandemic. And it's continued upward in the subsequent years. That makes gun violence one of the leading causes of death for kids. Robbie, any additional information on the impact of COVID-19 on kids? Yes, Jeremy, and it's distressing. A Stanford University researcher calculated that the loss to income earnings likely to result from the educational difficulties that COVID and the lack of in-person education produced will average $70,000 per child, and it will total $28 trillion over the rest of the century. This equates to a 5.6% decrease in lifetime earnings for these kids. And according to the data, the impact varied by state, with Delaware, Oklahoma, and West Virginia being hit the hardest, Alaska, Idaho, and Alabama showing the smallest declines, and the only state in the country 
not to show this impact was Utah. Based on the challenges young adults face when they fall behind educationally, the study indicates that these same students will have lower graduation rates, lower rates of college enrollment, higher rates of teen motherhood, and a greater number of arrests and incarcerations. Although in the modern era, this degree of miseducation isn't common, researchers found other examples of unique circumstances where either natural disasters or teacher strikes suspended in-person studies for relatively prolonged periods. And in each case, the students learned fewer academic skills and ended up with higher rates of unemployment, even when the disruption in education was measured in months, not as with COVID in years. Jeremy, let me ask you, with the benefit of retrospection, how would you as a parent want schools to approach minimizing the risk to students in terms of their health and the risk of the health of the teachers while doing the best possible to maximize the education when the next pandemic strikes? Robbie, I think it's totally dependent on the virus causing the pandemic. I think one of the biggest tragedies of the pandemic is how far children fell behind in terms of education and social skills. I don't know how people can realistically think telling a six or seven year old child who is still learning to read that they need to sit in front of a Zoom meeting all day without any in-person interaction. Children don't have the best attention spans and need interactive in-person learning. Failing to give a small child the education and social skills they need can hurt them for years to come. I think that if there's a pandemic as contagious as COVID, but as deadly as Ebola, that's a completely different conversation than a virus like COVID-19 itself. I think if there's another pandemic like COVID-19, we need to focus on isolating those most at risk, such as seniors and other people with comorbidities, but still let children go to school and receive the education and social skills that all children need to have. Robbie, listeners are enjoying our expanded focus on medical events beyond COVID-19. What's new? Jeremy, the first piece of this more general healthcare news, and why we're moving the title to Medicine the Truth, is the rate of growth of healthcare expenditures in the United States and who paid for it. The greatest impact was on patients whose out of pocket costs rose 10.4%. This is a rate of inflation not seen since 1985. In a recent Gallup poll, 37% of respondents said that they or someone in their family had skipped or compromised their medical care in the past year due to their inability to pay the price. This is a terrifying statistic. After out-of-pocket costs, the next two highest rates of increase were for the government, with the cost of Medicaid rising 9.2% and the cost of Medicare going up 8.4%. Private insurance costs, they increased by 5.8%. Overall, if you factor out the changes in year-to-year costs due to COVID, what we see is that total health spending rose by 7.6%. Assuming these inflationary trends continue, the problems of today will become more severe in the future unless major changes are enacted to make the provision of medical care both more efficient and effective. As you and I have talked about on last week's Diving Deep episode of Fixing Healthcare, contrary to what most Americans imagine, half of people in the United States have their health care coverage now provided by the federal government. 
through Medicare, Medicaid, and subsidized ACA individual healthcare exchanges. And within those numbers, the one that jumps out to me is Medicaid. Jeremy, as you know, there are 330 million Americans and around 30 million of them are uninsured. At least 300 insured individuals. And among those, 90 million are covered by Medicaid today. This is a program most of us think about as providing medical care simply to the poorest Americans. And that number is projected to rise to 100 million this year or next year. I doubt that very many listeners who hadn't seen the data would guess that one in three people in the wealthiest country in the world will soon be insured through Medicaid. Robbie, that's shocking. What else is surprising? Jeremy, I'm not sure I'd call it surprising, but it is encouraging. And that is that sign up for the healthcare exchanges this year have exceeded expectations by a large margin. More than 16.3 million Americans will be getting their health care through the exchanges that the Affordable Care Act created for individuals and families. This is the highest number of enrollees since the legislation was passed 10 years ago. It's 2 million more than last year. And of the total, 3.6 million, or 22%, are new people on the health care exchange market. Based on this data, there's high probability that the total number of uninsured Americans will drop below the current rate of 8.7%. And medical coverage is a strong factor in improving people's health. Another statistic that isn't completely unexpected, but in this case, discouraging, is that U.S. life expectancy continues to fall. The data for 2021 was recently released by the CDC, and life expectancy for Americans it fell by over a half year, from 77 years in 2020 to 76.4 in 2021. In total, there were 3.4 million Americans who died, which is a 5.3% increase from the year before. And the CDC highlighted that more than 1 million Americans have now died from COVID, which translates into more than one in every 330 Americans having perished during the pandemic. Jeremy, do any of these statistics, half of people insured by the government, one-third of people enrolled in Medicaid, or continue to decline in U.S. life expectancy? Do any of these surprise you as a patient? Robbie, with the economy continuing to decline and inflation on the rise, I think we're going to end up seeing even more people on Medicaid and other forms of government assistance. I also see the decline in life expectancy tragic, and I wonder if it's due to how many people stopped going to gyms, worsened their diet, became sedentary, avoided seeing a doctor for something they should have been seen for, uh, picked up habits such as drinking heavily or smoking, or developed mental health issues during the pandemic. I think these issues can largely be attributed to how the pandemic was handled in terms of its impact on mental health, the economy, and the overall health of the population. I think we discussed this very early on during the pandemic as the impending second wave of the pandemic. Robbie, what else is new relative to American healthcare? Jeremy, the abortion debate is growing in intensity, and the two sides are even farther apart than in the recent past. As an example, in the most recent election, the one held in November, California voters passed a law that makes abortion, quote, 
a fundamental right. And on the other hand, Tennessee just passed a law that requires so-called abortion-inducing drugs to be provided only by a physician in a medical facility, not by mail or not at a pharmacy. And this restriction could further restrict and diminish access. In contrast, the FDA recently ruled that the main pill that is taken to induce a spontaneous termination of pregnancy can be dispensed through drug stores like CVS or Walgreens, rather than, as in the past in the United States, only through a few mail-order pharmacies or specifically certified doctors or clinics. This approach aligns with the FDA's previous decision to abolish the requirements for patients to obtain this medication in person from a healthcare provider, which allowed telemedicine visits for women to be able to create prescriptions terminating pregnancy. The medication approach is currently authorized by the FDA for pregnancies up to 10 weeks, although research shows it can be safe and effectively used up to 12 to 13 weeks of pregnancy. And since half of all pregnancy terminations in the U.S. are currently accomplished through medication rather than through a procedure, all of these decisions and rulings predict a fierce battle and legal dispute between the federal government and anti-abortion states. The intensity of this battle over a woman's right to choose is clear based on the recent lawsuits filed in different states on this issue. On one hand, there are those who oppose abortions, and they're challenging the FDA's authority to make these changes in who can provide the drugs and whether a woman can legally receive them through the mail. On the other hand, there are those who are challenging states' rights to implement laws that contradict powers explicitly given to the federal government, in this case, one of its agencies, the FDA. This battle opens multiple cans of worms beyond abortion. If the FDA's broad authority is restricted, then states could do the same for a range of drugs that have gone through the regulatory process and been deemed safe for various medical problems. And if a temporary injunction is given by the courts, it could potentially limit the FDA's authority and it could stop medication from being prescribed to women in all states, even those with legislative guarantees of a woman's right to choose until the issue was resolved. In contrast, if the FDA's authority is upheld, it could dramatically limit the impact of the anti-abortion laws, even in the dozen or so states with near total bans on abortion, even in cases of rape and incest. Across history, the FDA's authority to implement the single set of pharmaceutical regulations for all Americans has been accepted and unchallenged. This issue raises questions about that power. It's hard to see how it won't end up in the Supreme Court. In parallel to the issues around dispensing the medication, the Justice Department, also a congressionally designated body with federal powers, issued a written opinion that the mailing of these medications through another federal agency, in this case, the US Postal Service, is legal in all states. The Department of Justice provided this opinion after the U.S. Postal Service requested clarification 
following the Dobbs decision. Assuming this legal opinion is felt in the courts, it would mean that states couldn't block a woman from receiving the pills, even in a state that totally banned the procedure under any circumstances. Jeremy, we could spend hours on this topic and its implications, but let's move on to other medical news and return once these legal rulings are in place. Robbie, let's go to the use of mRNA vaccines against disease targets besides COVID-19. What's new? Jeremy, let me warn listeners that when it comes to new drugs for these life-threatening problems, this will be a roller coaster ride. There'll be press releases given to the media by manufacturers about remarkable early laboratory results, and then they'll be followed by disappointing outcomes in clinical trials. But every once in a while, there will be a major therapeutic breakthrough. On the potentially positive side, Moderna said that by administering an mRNA vaccine, along with one of the commonly used drugs to patients with melanoma, that the combination reduced the risk of cancer recurrence or death from melanoma by 44% compared to giving the current drug alone. The mRNA approach begins by sequencing the patient's and the tumor's DNA, and then it tries to create a vaccine against the piece of the tumor's genetic sequence that isn't shared by the patients. But since the cancer's genetics is rarely completely different from the patients, individuals treated with this vaccine had a higher rate of serious complications than those who did not receive it. But Dura is hoping that if this approach proves effective, the company will move into other cancers besides melanoma. Listeners need to understand that most cancers are normal human cells that have gone astray. If they were genetically completely different from normal cells, like let's just say a bacteria is, then this mRNA approach would have a high chance of being game-changing. But they're not. And that makes this approach uncertain relative whether it stays a promising idea to, for the future or ends up being abandoned. When it comes to vaccines, what seems possible isn't guaranteed. An example of the difficulties of predicting what will happen is the very recent failure of the only HIV vaccine that was nearing completion of clinical trials. The initial research on this vaccine was promising in 2019 when it was administered to 3,900 study participants. But now, three years later, it has proven not to protect against HIV compared to placebo injections. According to the New York Times, it's unlikely that there'll be any vaccine developed for at least an additional three to five years, if at all. Unfortunately, more than 1.5 million people worldwide were infected with HIV last year, and that's on top of the 38.4 million already living with the disease. Assuming the current trajectory continues and we are successful in three to five years, there still will be 8 million more infections before this effective vaccine became available. And obviously it could be decades before we have the type of solution that we all desire. Robbie, what else is new? Jeremy, an area of interest for me has been hypertension. The reason I'm interested in this area is that it's the number one cause of strokes and a major contributor to heart disease and kidney failure. 
And yet across the United States today, it's only controlled 55 to 60%. We could talk about all the systemic issues in medical practice, the fragmentation of care, or the cultural ones around why doctors focus more on intervention than prevention. But for today, I'd like to discuss a recent survey from the World Health Organization, which estimates that 12.8% of deaths globally result from high blood pressure and its consequences. What they found was that one of the causes that we often ascribe to the problem, stress, whether stress in our personal lives or our work lives, they found that stress actually does not have a major contributory factor, despite people's belief that it does. But they also discovered that in addition to genetic proclivity, lifestyle medicine factors, overeating, smoking, and lack of exercise clearly do. In fact, according to the Cleveland Clinic, management of hypertension is 70% lifestyle and only 30% medication. So I want to encourage all of our listeners that if they haven't had their blood pressure checked, to go ahead and do so. And once it's checked, if it's elevated, to go ahead and make the lifestyle changes and get the medication required to bring it back to normal. Robbie, how about another healthcare story? Sharon, we've told our listeners that we'd be changing the title of this podcast from Coronavirus the Truth to Medicine the Truth. We'll have definitely a lot of COVID-19 stories to include in our subsequent broadcasts. As you know, in addition to teaching the Stanford School of Medicine, I teach at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. So I was very interested in comments that Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, made at his press conference a couple of weeks ago. He said that one reason the labor market is so tight right now is that many workers have died from COVID. He said that half a million Americans who would have been working have succumbed to COVID. And he translated that into 400,000 fewer working age Americans, all of whom died beyond that which would have been predicted. And add to that, many of the 1 million people who survived an infection, but continue to have symptoms consistent with long COVID and the health consequences of this pandemic explain a significant percentage of the 3.5 million people that Powell noted are missing from today's workforce compared to the past. And none of the people who died or remained uh, medically incapacitated included other individuals, ones who resigned from work early due to their experience during COVID, including their psychological concerns and the impact that social isolation produced. Robbie, let's turn to something you mentioned earlier. Can you expand on the drop in life expectancy for Americans? Jeremy, as we discussed, life expectancy declined by over half a year. The biggest increases in mortality came from the COVID deaths in 2021. They rose 22.5% compared to the first year of the pandemic. And drug overdoses that went up 12.3% from the year before with fentanyl, a powerful opioid that's often put into less dangerous drugs, contributing significantly to the problem. As you might expect, relative to deaths from COVID, the largest increases in mortality they happen among people over the age of 65. But in contrast, the higher drug-related mortality, that occurred in all age groups. But these statistics overlook the underlying problems that contributed to both of these lethal problems. We know that among older individuals who died from COVID, 
as many as 90% of them had two or more chronic diseases that contributed to their demise. An excess prescription of narcotics by physicians often is a precedent to addiction and pursuit of illegal drugs. And given the tools we have today to both prevent chronic illnesses and minimize their complications, we should be seeing life expectancy rising. Even before the pandemic, the U.S. was five years behind the other industrialized nations of the world in longevity, and since then, the gap has grown. Robbie, any parting thoughts? Jeremy, a couple of weeks ago, a company called OpenAI released a computer application called ChatGPT. Its popularity, as you well know, has been immense, and it's created challenges for a variety of disciplines. The letters GPT stand for Generative Pre-Trained Transformer. ChatGPT uses a neural network machine learning model, and it's trained to transform information from the internet to normal text and language. ChatGPT is far more powerful than any similar AI tool that already exists, and it uses a predictive approach to creating text similar to how the human mind works. It already has passed each of the three tests that medical students must take to become a physician. It's passed the bar exam for lawyers. And in a blind test of the technology, it was given the same final exams as law students in four different classes, and it passed each of them, albeit with a C-plus average, which was below the class average of B-plus. The tests were graded by teachers who were unaware of which exams were written by humans and which by computers. At a leading academic institution, an anonymous survey of students indicated that 17% of them had used ChatGPT to write the final term papers, and numerous researchers have started to include ChatGPT as a co-author on papers, much to the chagrin of journal editors. The academic and educational challenges are evident. But when it comes to medical practice, I'm incredibly optimistic that this tool, and more importantly, its next generation, will radically transform healthcare. First, remember that the effectiveness of technology often doubles. It's called Moore's Law, and it doubles every two years. And if that holds for ChatGPT's technology, it will be 30 times more powerful a decade from now and a thousand times more powerful in 20 years. That's the difference between walking from place to place, as our ancestors did 10,000 years ago, versus going into space or traveling in a flying car. This technology can serve as a future healthcare assistant. It can update people on preventive screening, advise them on lifestyle opportunities around diet, exercise, and unhealthy habits, and tell them when it's time to take their medications. It can monitor wearable devices like glucometers and electronic blood pressure cuffs and advise people when additional treatment is needed based on their physician's treatment recommendations. Chronic diseases now account for 70% of medical issues, costs, and deaths. They're best managed on a continuous daily basis, something no doctor can do and no health system can afford. But using ChatGPT, millions of people will with these life-threatening problems can be followed and helped 
for pennies a day. I could give you dozens of other examples of the potential that exists for this new technology, but given the time, let's save it for a future episode of Medicine, the Truth. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com, and on all platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the host, please visit the contact page on our website or send us a message on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Thank you for listening and have a great day.